This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by GE, enabling institutions everywhere to ensure quality healthcare flows seamlessly and effectively for providers and patients. That's intelligently efficient. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Experts and innovators join the Post to discuss how artificial intelligence is transforming medical care as we know it, including in the fight against COVID-19. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Christina Passariello, the technology editor for the Washington Post. Today, we're going to be discussing artificial intelligence in healthcare, and we're joined by two experts in the field. We have Andrew Hopkins, the CEO of pharma tech company, Accentia. Andrew, welcome. Absolute pleasure to be here today, Christina. Thanks, Andrew. And we also have Dr. Ziad Obermeyer, He's a professor of health policy and management at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Dr. Obermeyer, welcome. Wonderful to be here. Thank you both for joining us this afternoon. Um, so, Andrew, let's start off with you. Accentia, you use artificial intelligence to help efficiently discover new medicines. Um, tell us what you think about how the COVID vaccines uh, have been developed. I actually think it's opened up uh, a huge challenge, a gauntlet it's thrown down for everyone else to think about. I mean, normally when we think about vaccine development and think about drug development, it takes place in the order of decades. Um, one of the things we've been driven by is how to reduce that discovery period, which is usually five years. And in fact, what we've done now in, in sort of six examples have already driven that down to around 12 months. And I think what we've seen actually by this combination of effort to want to change the, the processes, the paradigms, is that we see now that actually there is a new possibility. Actually, what is what is now being possible with reducing the timelines? And we've done this for COVID because of a huge emergency, but every patient deserves urgency. So one of the challenges I think we now face and, and, and how we even think about our own company is how then do we um, do this, not just for the urgency of vaccines, which actually scientifically is a very well-known um, um, antigen to aim after, but actually how do we do this for all drugs? And that's where the real challenge is. And that's where actually we focus ourselves as a company to take on that challenge. So I think actually it's gonna be a, a watershed in how we think about efficiency and productivity now that we've seen that science can deliver. So tell us a little bit just about how that works. How, um, how are you applying artificial intelligence to developing new therapeutics? So the way we think about it is that drugs are precision engineered technology. Every atom, how they connect together to make up that molecule determines its future success or failure. You know, whether or not it's gonna be a safe, efficacious medicine or whether or not it could have sort of side effects. But actually, how we then define and decide where, where those atoms reside, how that design is a result of potentially billions of different design decisions. And this is where the, the challenge actually comes from. It's because we're exploring such a large, high-dimensional space that actually often pharmaceutical companies need to make thousands of molecules to work their way through that path of their initial sort of starting points to the optimized precision engineer drug. Where we now find in that artificial intelligence makes a huge difference is actually if we let the AI do a design and do a selection, because actually it's far more efficient at searching that high dimensionality space within um, such a sparse sort of set of data we have. This is where AI now is now really helping us, you know, actually move projects far faster, 
because we're making better decisions and that results in actually doing fewer experiments, making fewer compounds, significantly fewer. What we've seen so far is about 80% fewer compared to the industry average. And that then leads into all sorts of implications then for increased speed and also much better economics and hopefully reduced costs as well. And you mentioned um, that you know that all all diseases and all illnesses should benefit from the kind of fast development that we've seen for the COVID vaccines. Um, can you give us an example of a of a, a different kind of illness that where you've seen uh, the development of a cure go extremely slowly, and where you feel like artificial intelligence could play a big role in in accelerating that? So. I believe that you know every patient for every disease actually needs to benefit from these technologies. So the way we design our technology actually is to be agnostic. It doesn't matter which type of disease or actually which type of drug target. Actually, as long as we have data to drive the algorithms, we can therefore think about how we can apply these technologies to it. So if I, I give an example, so of um, it, many of the of, um, um, diseases we're working on, whether from psychiatry to, to immunology, we are seeing that, that uh, Early stage drug discovery can take, you know, on average about five years to run a project to explore this space and find out precision medicine. And now we're at a stage now we've got um, the AI we've used to discover uh, six new prototype drugs, which are in either uh, phase one or preclinical safety testing. And each one of those projects we now found out on average only took us 12 months significantly faster than when we've seen previously. And we see this now as a way, if we look at our own portfolio, that internally we think about immunology and, and oncology, but actually with our collaborations, um, that ranges from neuroscience to diseases of the developing world, uh, a new collaboration we recently set up with the Gates Foundation. So what we find there is that we ultimately believe that, you know, the patient should be impatient. But actually, we need to be think about a new framework now where it becomes a right how we start to then transfer, you know, an idea from the university, that new knowledge into a new medicine as soon as possible. And I'll give you an example. There's been some wonderful work looking at uh, um, uh, the success of NIH grants over the past uh, so many decades. And what's surprising, it can take sometimes about 30 years from the initial germination of an idea in uh, academia, in universities, to actually becoming an FDA approved drug. And 12 to 15 of those years, you know, take place inside being developed inside a pharmaceutical company, around five years in discovery, around maybe 10 years in clinical development. But actually because of the, of, um, uh, the expense of um, that initial uh, um, uh, investment, it actually takes them 10 to 15 years building up the evidence inside academia for us to have, uh, begin even to start a project. So therefore, if we can lower the economic barriers, we can therefore bring in far new medicines quicker to the clinic. And that's actually one of our driving forces. How do we lower those barriers so we can bring innovations for clinic quicker? And um, Ziad, um, you know, Andrew mentioned that everybody should have access to all kinds of medicines. But what we've seen with COVID is obviously that certain minority communities are like, you know, really um, affected disproportionately by COVID. Um, how are you how are you thinking about that and how are you thinking about the role um, of AI and bias in both uh, who gets um, who's been affected by COVID and also in terms of the vaccine rollout? 
Yeah, I think as, as Andrew mentioned, COVID has really highlighted, um, you know, a lot of highs and a lot of wonderful things about our medical system. The fact that we have a vaccine for a disease that we hadn't heard about a year ago is just an amazing triumph um, of science. And I think that that's the kind of thing that benefits everyone. It benefits rich and poor alike. Um, and at the same time, COVID has also highlighted um, all of the ugly things about our healthcare system, which we've seen primarily um, in what happens after we develop the vaccine. So then who gets the vaccine um, before the vaccine was available? Who was getting treatment for COVID? Which hospitals were getting um, federal aid for COVID? I think a lot of the um, uh, the, the highs and lows are, are both are both there if we're looking in COVID. And so I think that you know one of the one of the focuses of, of my research is how to design algorithms so that um, not only do the resources get to people who need them, but it's done with attention to these deep socioeconomic um, and, and ethnic divides in our society. Um, I'll just give you one quick example of, of why that kind of um, the, the, the data and the approach is so important. All of our information, all of the intelligence that we have about the epidemic um, comes from number of cases, number of deaths. So that's the thing that everyone is checking um, on, on everyone's dashboard uh, and, and on all these websites every day. But notice that that depends on someone having access to testing for COVID. And so think about someone in a poor neighborhood without a primary care doctor versus someone who um, has insurance, who has easy access to testing. Um, even though those people might have very um, similar likelihoods of getting COVID, um, one is more likely to be tested. And so we're more likely to see the epidemic in some places than others. So we really need to pay attention to those kinds of disparities, not just in treatment, but also in data when we're thinking about how to design solutions. That's really interesting. Um, can you, how does that extend beyond the U.S.'s borders? Um, there are, you know, for instance, in Africa, uh, there have been reports that the outbreaks of coronavirus there have not been as great as what was potentially anticipated. Um, is some of that just due to the data collection? Yeah, I, I think it's it's certainly in part due to that, um, be, because I think, you know, the, the only way we see COVID is if we have tests for COVID. And so in places without tests, we're, we're just not going to see it, even if it's very present. Um, that said, I think that that doesn't explain all of the differences across countries. Um, and I think, you know, the these huge differences across countries, but even um, across U.S. states, some with very aggressive lockdown policies, others without, um, some with high cases, some with low cases. I think there's so much that we don't understand about the epidemic. Um, and so I think that that um, getting better data not only is a tool for equity, for representing where the epidemic is and where it isn't, but also for building up our understanding of what are very complex underlying um, both biological and social um, contributions to the epidemic. Um, Andrew, you know, there have been uh, people from Elon Musk to Andrew Hawkins who've said that, you know, have warned about the dangers of artificial intelligence. Um, can you give us your perspective on what you see the potential in it being and how would you sort of defend against um, those, you know, darker, more ominous warnings around artificial intelligence? So from our point of view, what we see in day to day now, we are seeing that it's got a huge potential to transform this industry, not this industry, many others, but I'm speaking from a um, biotech pharma perspective. And I've been actually in a position where I've been incredibly frustrated about just how long it takes, you know, to discover new medicines, bring to market. So if we can now see ways forward where we can make, I believe, societal good by actually now in bringing, you know, very significant transformations in productivity, efficiency, and effectiveness to that field. So actually the, the patients benefit in the long term, 
Like for me, actually, that is an, 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 an you know an, an allied good. The really important element about this as well is that it's not just AI by itself. We call our system Centaur because we absolutely recognize that the best productivity performance is by combining human strategic oversight and expertise in knowing what questions to ask and setting the problems and actually using the AI for the sort of tactical heavy lifting so we can actually okay. then use it to find the answers quicker. And, and Ziad, um, what do you think about these uh, you know, the idea that the federal government should be regulating AI and how do you think that would change some of the issues that we're seeing around bias and artificial intelligence? Yeah, it's a great question. I first wanted to agree with um, Andrew's point. I, I think that criticisms are a little bit like saying um, hammers are dangerous. And it's true, hammers can be very dangerous, but hammers can also be used for lots of really wonderful things like building a house. And so it just, I think Andrew is totally right to put the focus on what are the humans doing with the algorithm rather than kind of trying to make value judgments about what is fundamentally just a, a tool. Um, and so, you know, germane to that is the question of regulation. So um, in, in a lot of our work, uh, what we found is that there is substantial amounts of racial bias in algorithms that are actually very widespread in the healthcare system um, that nobody caught. The, um, companies and academic groups that are making the algorithms didn't catch it. The hospitals, many of them nonprofit who were buying and using the algorithms didn't catch it. The patients and doctors who were at the front lines didn't catch it. And so that's the kind of thing that certainly suggests a role for regulation when you have problems that nobody is catching that, that go out into the world and do harm. Um, it's certainly um, uh, a case where, where regulation can, can have a positive impact. At the same time, regulation is never going to get ahead of the many creative um, and, and potentially dangerous uses that people are going to put algorithms towards. And so I think it's both um, regulation, but also building up um, the data resources for um, people who want to study algorithms to do that in a transparent um, and, and uh, rigorous way. Um, let's go to an audience question for a moment. Um, we have uh, viewer Linda Duffy from Maine who writes in with this question. What are your thoughts on the controversial ethical standards for AI in healthcare, especially in areas of mental health? Ziad, maybe we can start with you on that. Yeah, I think mental health is, is certainly an important area, and it's just one of many areas where um, lots of people are starting to apply algorithms for diagnosis to target treatment. Um, and I think just stepping back, and mental health is a great example, we really need algorithms to help. Mental illness is dramatically underdiagnosed, it's misdiagnosed, um, it manifests as back pain or, or other kinds of pain. Um, humans aren't great at diagnosing it. And so this is clearly a case where we want algorithms to help humans do their job in the healthcare system and in diagnosing and treating disease. At the same time, I think there's a lot of, um, there's so much activity in this area that it can be very hard to tell apart what is working, what is fundamentally doing the job that we want it to do, and what isn't. Um, the nice thing in health, at least, is that we have a playbook for evaluating new technologies, um, and, and, and we should just use that playbook for artificial intelligence. So, you know, we would never introduce a drug into widespread clinical practice without rigorously evaluating it in a clinical trial. Um, and so, you know, we need that same mentality for evaluating algorithms. Algorithms can be great. Algorithms can do harm. The only way to know is to do that rigorous evaluation that we do um, for all other kinds of medical technology. Thank you. And, and Andrew, what about you? What do you think about um, the ways that 
these uh, ethical questions can be addressed in, in mental health. I, I fully agree, actually, what was just said, which every time we have a new technology, whether it's AI or something else, we have to apply the same rigorous standards of how we are going to then um, protect the consumer, protect the patient, as we would if it was a, a medical intervention, if it was a drug, if it was a new piece of surgery. So therefore, we should not think about it in any different than the ethical frameworks that we judge any other uh, medical intervention in that sense. But there's also a bigger question, you know, whether or not it's early in research or whether or not it's laced with patient population, we always worry about bias within our data sets. And actually, one of the key things, this is why human oversight in the, in the creation and use and collaboration with the AIs is so vital, because without people to, to ask the questions about, is this actually just uh, um, um, not exploring uh, a new space and just actually giving me um, what might be considered biased input data is one of the real challenges. And I think actually this is why it's so essential, actually, that um, we should never always think about AI standalone, but actually always think about it is a partnership, actually, with human expertise, actually, to get to the right answer. Can I um, just build on that for, for one moment? I'm so glad you brought that up, Andrew. And I think that, you know, mental health is particularly important from that point of view, because we often dismiss patients' complaints as, you know, mental health. Um, uh, ulcers for a long time were dismissed as caused by stress when it turns out they're caused by bacteria. And so, and, and that tendency to do that is not the same in all genders. It's not the same in all ethnic groups. Um, and so uh, as, as one example of, of where algorithms I think can really help, um, we have a paper that's coming out uh, later this month where we train an algorithm to look at x-rays of patients' knees. Um, radiologists, it turns out, miss the causes of knee pain that are more common in non-white populations. Um, and, and we can show that by training an algorithm to find the causes of pain by listening to the patient um, and by finding the correlates of that patient's pain in their x-ray in a way that actually reverses some of the bias that's built into medical knowledge. And so I think it just shows that algorithms can, you know, they can be tools um, for, for good or they can be tools to reinforce structural inequalities um, and which one really depends on us. Andrew, last question for you. Um, you know, we read about how COVID might just be the first of other pandemics that we might face um, in our time. Uh, knowing what we know now about how, um, you know, we've everything that we've learned about COVID in the last year or so, um, how would you apply these findings to thinking about artificial intelligence being used for the next pandemic? That's a great question. And in fact, we're already involved with um, some work with a big consortium in the European Union in thinking about preparedness for actually the next potential coronavirus pandemic. Don't forget, we've had previous warnings. Uh, we had SARS back in 2003, 2012, where we had MERS. We had you know, ample evidence that there was going to be potentially a, a, a coronavirus pandemic uh, this century. So one of the key things I think actually that uh, we need to think about as a society now is how do we rapidly prepare? And we can have, we've certainly got surveillance and understanding about what might be emerging pathogens. We can certainly think about what might be the range of um, genomic spectrums of what the drug targets actually might give us sort of a, uh, an ability to go after a pan uh, virus um, compound as opposed to one that's very specific for a particular um, um, agent. So therefore, we now need to be actually using very efficient tools. And I think actually AI right now is in a great place actually to think about how we design at scale so we can think about actually having a whole range of medicines, you know, economically prepared 
uh, that are actually almost ready to go. And I think what it does require then, you know, is an investment by the global community to, you know, make this research and these compounds available. But what it gives us then is immediately, it still took us a year to prepare even the, the most rapid vaccines ever done. But actually, um, when we, if we think about what we could have targeted, for example, some of the proteins inside uh, COVID, extremely similar um, to proteins inside uh, SARS. And in fact, if we did develop those agents against SARS, those antivirals, they would have been ready, immediately available in, in Wuhan before the virus took off. And that's actually what we need to be aiming for. That is so interesting. Lots to think about. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew Hopkins and Dr. Ziad Obermeyer. Thank you. Thank you. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Kimberly Powell and Dr. Eric Topol. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good afternoon. My name is Mikey Kay, and I'm delighted to be joined by Everett Cunningham, GE Hunter's U.S. President and CEO, and Dr. Rachel Kalker, Chief Research Informatics Officer at UC Davis School of Medicine Health System, to discuss how AI or artificial intelligence is helping reimagine hospitals today and in the future. Everett, I'll come to you first. Hospitals and providers are using AI today to maximize efficiency and minimize staff burnout while improving care for a growing number of patients. How did artificial intelligence come to play such a key role in healthcare? Yeah, thanks, Mikey. Um, AI is definitely playing a huge role in managing the explosion of data uh, in healthcare. And uh, GE, we wanted to take more of a formal way of looking at that. We actually did a study with MIT and we asked clinicians in the US and UK what role AI was playing. And over three quarters of those physicians said that AI was better used in the prediction of the treatment of, uh, of, diagno of treatment of, of disease states. Um, and not only was AI used in the treatment of disease states, but AI was used to better collaborate uh, with their peers, with other clinicians, and AI actually reduced the burden of administrative uh, work that they had to do. Um, that was pre-COVID, you know, pre-pandemic. And what we're seeing across our travels is we're seeing that COVID-19 is accelerating the use of AI in many health systems across the United States and UK. It's amazing, the, uh, the explosion of AI. Dr. Kalko, let me come to you. I mean, healthcare by its very nature is a very personal matter. And there's concern uh, in some areas that artificial intelligence means losing the personal touch. But there are others that would say that AI actually because it improves efficiency, it can make healthcare more personal as it frees up doctors to spend more time with patients. What is the right balance? Yeah, it's a really important question. There is no doubt that AI has an impact on personal touch. And the way in which it has that input, it's really dependent upon how you design and develop and keep the end user in mind of who's going to use that technology. It can both enhance that personal touch as well as um, harm it, depending upon how you actually build the AI. So there's no question that for us as healthcare providers, if we use the efficiency tools developed by AI, we have more time to spend on the important parts of interacting with our patient, really cultivating that important patient and provider relationship. 
It's also important to remember that AI is really quite good already at making very simple decisions, and we see that across the healthcare entities, but it's not as good at making complex decisions. And there's no question that in the complex decision-making space where a lot of personal choices are made about care, will continue to be dependent upon the provider and patient interaction and important individual decision-making. Ever, you spoke about acceleration, um, and obviously with acceleration, there needs to become modernization, which you talk about as well. So based on your conversations with customers, academics, and others, what's it going to take to get us there? You know, when I think of modernization of healthcare, one thing that comes to my mind is collaboration. Collaboration is key, Mikey. Um, no one company can do this alone. Um, it's going to take the entire ecosystem of healthcare to really tackle this and move modernization forward. It's gonna take health systems, it's gonna take technology partners, it's gonna take academia, it's gonna take industry, you know, to really modernize healthcare. I have a few examples of GE Healthcare and how we've collaborated with other entities. One is Oregon Health and Science University out in Portland. Uh, they're actually using our mural software and other technologies to really care for critical care patients not just in their hub hospital, but in satellite hospitals across their entire region. Um, especially during COVID taking care of these patients, we need to think about the productivity and efficiency of physicians, the safety of both physicians and patients. And what Mural has done is it's allowed to care for critical care patients in a bunker-like setting so the physician, clinician, doesn't have to be bedside and still give really good quality care. Another good example is how we're working with Tampa General. They're using another tool of ours uh, called Command Center. They've rebranded it. They've called it the Critical Command Center. And I liken this to almost like NASA mission control. And Tampa General's done a great job of looking at metrics like they've lowered um, uh, patients' day by one full day. They've increased bed capacity by 30 beds. And they've lowered overall cost by $40 million. Um, and this is just another tool that we've used with partners all across the U.S. and Canada, not just in, in, in digital software, but also in detecting disease states. Uh, we're working with health systems in the Midwest and how they're diagnosing collapsed lungs so their physicians can better intubate patients. Again, another way that we're making health systems much more efficient at the way in which they're caring for patients. It's exciting. I think we've got time for one more question. Um, Dr. Kalka, you spoke about AI in a talk you gave this time last year, which is obviously just before the pandemic, and you were asking whether artificial intelligence is hype or hope. How do you think it has performed during COVID, and has it changed personally your outlook of the future of artificial intelligence in healthcare? There was no question before the pandemic that there was a tremendous amount of hype and a lot of unrealized potential. I think fundamentally this pandemic has accelerated our adoption and our tolerance both as providers, as consumers, and as patients for the adoption of these digital type technologies. One of the important things that Everett mentioned, which cannot be um, overemphasized, is the need for collaboration. Nobody will be able to develop these very impactful tools in their own isolated silo. And so my research team at UCSF was really foundational in the development of some of the technology that he alluded to with regards to the collapsed lung and positioning of breathing tubes. The thing about the 
going from hype to hope to real implementation was that we were actually able to rapidly um, adapt those for COVID patients to really reduce the exposure of healthcare personnel to potentially high risk situations and make care for patients um, faster, more efficient and, and diagnoses uh, quicker. And that's a really important um, evolution of the step forward. The other space where this has really been impactful is in telehealth. And we were considered essentially at UC Davis, a telehealth center of excellence. And we've gone from a portfolio of about 5% pre-pandemic of telehealth visits to over a steady rate of 20% and at the peak 80%. And I think people's tolerance and adoption are rapidly moving forward and healthcare will never be the same after this. It's very exciting for those of us who work in this space. Everett, we've got 10 seconds. What's your prediction for the future of AI in healthcare? Mikey, it's here to stay. It's making health systems more intelligent. It's helping in patient care um, and it's lowering overall cost. Um, to me, that's the trifecta, and AI is here to stay. Sadly, we've got to call it there, Everett, Dr. Carker. Thanks so much for these fascinating insights. Have a great afternoon. Now back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, where we're discussing artificial intelligence in healthcare. I'm Christina Passariello, the Washington Post technology editor. We're joined by two more experts. We have Kimberly Powell, Executive Vice President of Healthcare at NVIDIA. Kimberly, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And we have Dr. Eric Topol. He's the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute and executive vice president of Scripps Research. Dr. Topol, welcome. Thanks, Christina. Great to be with you and also Kimberly. <laughs> nice to see you, Eric. It's great to have you both with us this afternoon. Um, Dr. Topol, let's start with you. Um, you know, we're seeing these new variants of coronavirus spreading in London, South Africa, Japan, and other places. On your Twitter account, you were examining how quickly these new variants are spreading compared with the time frame for the vaccinations. Tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about that. Right. Well, there's three major new variants, and they really qualify as strains because they have such extensive mutations and they, they act differently. They're more infectious. Uh, and so they double uh, each week at least. And so what we're seeing, even though it's in the U.S., about 1% for the B117, that's the so-called U.K. variant, it's going to be in the next six to eight weeks like it is in Ireland and the U.K., where it's become dominant. And so we're going to see a lot more spread. And unless we get much tighter about our mask and our enforcement of those and distancing and all the things that we know will help and work. And one of those, of course, is, um, you know, better surveillance. That's where AI kicks in. So um, I think the race is we're not vaccinating as quickly. Uh, the, the, it's, we think these three different uh, new strains, the one other one in Brazil, and as you mentioned, South Africa, we think they're going to be sensitive uh, fully or close to fully to the current vaccines. But uh, it's important that we get as fast that vaccination um, outrunning the virus uh, as much as possible. One day uh, recently, we hit 1.2 million Americans got shots, their first shot. If we can get that up to two to three million a day, then we'll, we'll do a really good job of uh, getting ahead of this virus. But we've got to amp it up. Tell us a little bit about how those variants are affecting testing. And to your point, explain a little bit about the role that AI can help play in that as the virus mutates. 
Right. Well, unfortunately, we're ranked 43rd in the world for genomic surveillance, which is pitiful, really. Um, and so we don't like we don't have digital surveillance, better mobility, wastewater, all these different types of surveillance for COVID. This is yet another dimension of it. If we did more sequencing, at least 5% instead of 0.2% is what we're doing right now, we would be ahead of this. There's going to ultimately likely be a U.S. strain because we have so much profound spread in this country. Um, so we do need to get the, the genomics uh, up there and hopefully that's gonna happen in, in the weeks ahead. Uh, it's, it's definitely shameful how we let this, the only reason we found these, these new um, strains, particularly the UK one, is because we were signaled by them and the UK is certainly one of the leaders in this. So, you know, the, the work, it requires better supply of reagents, uh, but more sequencers, uh, more analytics, and more people, but it can be done and hopefully we'll see the change. And Kimberly, um, one of the things that we've seen over the last year is how uh, the coronavirus has accelerated this, these technological changes in our society that might've taken years otherwise. Um, from your point of view, how has the coronavirus changed NVIDIA's thinking about the role that technology plays in combating disease? Yeah, thanks, Christina. So, you know, if you look at, um, I can even talk about genomic surveillance for a second, just as Eric was talking about. Um, just this week, actually, at the JP Morgan Health Conference, we talked about, investor conference, a really wonderful announcement where with Oxford Nanopore Technologies. Um, this is a, an incredible breakthrough in genomic sequencing um, that is being driven by artificial intelligence. They have genomic sequencers that are in the palm of your hand and they have AI supercomputers inside so that they can reach the far ends of the earth and still help provide uh, this genomic surveillance that's necessary to catch new strains and really understand what's going on with the virus. And they have this um, very ultra high throughput sequencing machine that uh, was just announced that uses one of our AI supercomputers to do ultra high throughput, um, 100 genomes at a time. So this, their, their technology and the platform of artificial intelligence allows this, this single platform of nanopore sequencing to be used across the uh, practice of medicine. It's very applicable in the times like we need right now in uh, COVID uh, epidemiology for, they've also developed um, a, a COVID-19 test that could be used in place of uh, the PCR test all the way through to the viral sequencing to understand its mutation and its spread. Um, and now with the recent advances in uh, the AI uh, platform and AI driven um, what they call variant calling to discover variants, um, reaching signal nucleotide accuracy of the 99.9%, they're gonna have breakthroughs in human genetics and in cancer genetics. Uh, so this is an example just to kind of reiterate the importance of what Eric said, um, sequencers in the price range now of $1,000. So the accessibility of uh, genomic surveillance now becoming more and more only because of artificial intelligence. Um, the other point I'll make uh, to, your, to your question as well is, you know, there's a phenomenon in the drug discovery industry called E-Room's Law. It's the reverse of Moore's Law, and unfortunately, it's the exponential decline in our R&D efficiency of drug discovery. And this has been a phenomenon that has described the industry for decades. 
Uh, but what the pandemic has done is sort of the, this incredible global tragedy that the pandemic has brought upon us. It really calls to say that the e-rooms law is no longer acceptable. And frankly, the entire drug discovery industry is well understanding this, that what we were able to achieve with warp speed um, is phenomenal and it will forever change the drug discovery industry. And what NVIDIA does uh, with all of the ecosystem partners in a, in a joint effort of uh, technology, uh, people, the practice of medicine is to really think about using uh, computing, accelerated computing, as well as artificial uh, intelligence to really do warp speed drug discovery now and forever. Uh, this unfortunate pandemic, we've got to get beyond it, but it won't be our last. So everything, all the breakthroughs that we've discovered in the last 12 months, which have been so many, uh, have really laid a new um, bar for how we're going to do warp speed drug discovery forevermore, driven by time machine that we can create through accelerated computing and artificial intelligence that will really help our success rates boost and go much faster uh, in this world of drug discovery. Um, I mean, if there's one thing that we know from this past year, it's that time is of the essence in so many of these, with so many of, as, of these aspects of the pandemic. Um, Eric, you mentioned how the next six to eight weeks are going to be so critical uh, with these new, these new variants, these mutations. Um, tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about that time frame when it comes to um, testing, but also hospitalizations and uh, and the vaccinations. Lay out a little bit about what the data might show us over the next six to eight weeks. Right, well, if we just keep doing what we're doing, well, as, you, as you know, we had over 4,400 deaths yesterday, the worst since the pandemic began here. We also are, uh, have broken the health system uh, capabilities, particularly the, the healthcare workforce, but even facilities. When you have patients who are critically ill in the gift shop and conference rooms or waiting out in the uh, ambulance for hours in the parking lot to get in to be seen, you know you've already crushed this um, ability to care for patients. So that's where we are essentially right now. And the point being is that we can get much worse. People, you know, we don't know what the, the peak is because we're still in the midst of it. And this third surge has been a monster. So. The vaccine story, you know, we haven't taken it seriously until recent days. Uh, you know, we need to have it 24-7. We need to have it simple. You know, the virus is opportunistic and exponential. We have to be the same. And this whole idea of having phase 1A, B, C, I mean, the virus doesn't obey these. And we need to move much faster and just use, for example, things like age as a criteria. Uh, we've gotten the healthcare workforce getting closer and closer to getting that group uh, vaccinated, at least with the first dose and soon both doses. So if we move more appropriately with vaccination, if we get the rapid home tests, you know, Kimberly did such a great job of summarizing the, uh, the uh, sequencers that you could hold in your hand that a smartphone mediated potentially in such a low cost and fast, but there are rapid home tests that work similarly that can be done at the cost of less than $5 or less than a dollar a day with a five, five minute turnaround. And these should have been out in every American household already so that people would know about going to school, about their viral load and whether they're infectious, going to work. Instead, we're relying on these crude things like temperature, which is almost worthless. So we have the technology, uh, we have the analytics, uh, and you know this is something just hasn't been implemented. We haven't overall been taking this seriously enough. 
And now it's really the time because now, unless we take very aggressive action, we're going to see the worst in the next, as you say, Christine, in the next at least month to two months, when instead we should be getting containment. And the vaccine, which is working extraordinarily well in Israel, the most aggressive country, where they've really gotten, finally turned this thing around, where they were as in bad shape as we are right now, and they're on the decline to descent. So we should learn from other places about that. Um, you know, we've got President-elect Biden, uh, who's set to be inaugurated next week, and one of his main announcements on coronavirus is that he's going to be distributing all of the vaccines and not waiting for the second doses to be available. And now um, the current administration is also taking that tactic. Um, I'd love to hear from um, both of you what you think about that. Uh, is that the right move? Um, Eric, maybe we can start with you. Oh, I applaud that because we we know that the whole idea that both Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, they've, they've got the production thing in pretty good shape. So the, the faster we get the first dose in everyone and not hold back half of them, which is tens of millions of doses, uh, and rely on that we're going to be close to the three-week for Pfizer, four-week second dose uh, for Moderna. Even if we deviate a week or two or a few from that, it's not a concern. The main concern is getting the vaccination uh, out there. And so this should have been done uh, uh, from the beginning. And why there was this crazy idea of holding back half the doses never made sense. And Kimberly, what, what about you? What do you think about this um, plan to just go ahead and distribute what's now available? I mean, it makes perfect sense to me, not being a healthcare professional, but being a patient and having family members who have been not only infected by the virus, but at very high risk for, uh, you know, detrimental effects from the virus. Absolutely. Uh, getting this out into um, the public and into every arm that we can. Um, I have small children. They'd love to be in school. Um, how can we protect our teachers, our healthcare workers, our front you know, line defense system. Uh, we have so many that need to be protected. We've got to logistically figure this out. Again, I think that with preparation, with using modern day systems, we have all of that. Um, if you think about how Amazon logistically can get packages to my door um, in a couple of hours, it seems to me that we could target and get shots in arms to the people who need it most. Uh, and, and you know that Amazon and their platform largely driven by artificial intelligence and technology. We've got to understand that this technology exists and we've got to use everything in our power to put it in place so that we can reap the benefits of project of, of warp speed and, and we can get past uh, this, this critical third phase. Um, Kimberly, I mean, testing is such an important component of our understanding of the pandemic. You mentioned earlier about how NVIDIA uh, has developed an AI-based alternative to the traditional testing. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what that is and how it works? Well, well, I'll say that our, our, our great partner, Oxford Nanopore Technologies, has developed um, a reagent technology and their sequencers are able to have a, an alternative to the testing. And because their, their platform, the computational platform that does the sequencing, because it is artificial intelligence and it's also software defined, meaning they can make very quick adjustments in the computational platform that now has to react to a new chemical chemistry input that can do this COVID-19 
testing, they're able to roll that out, you know, worldwide um, in a matter of no logistics. Uh, it's software defined. It's really like an over-the-air update, sort of like your your Tesla car might get a, a new update. Uh, they can also do that to put this capability. Uh, of, of being an alternative test for COVID-19. So largely when I talk about our contribution, it's really the contribution of artificial intelligence that can create alternatives for how we can not only test, uh, diagnose, prognose, uh, you, you, you mentioned it across the, uh, the, the continuum of, of, of healthcare delivery to COVID patients. Uh, we've made um, you know, other in tremendous progress with uh, folks like collaborating with uh, the National Institutes of Health. Early in the year, we got together to say, Let's what could audience. we do to make a contribution? And they were getting um, you know, data from around the world to say, how could we use um, compute, computer tomography, CT scans to potentially be an alternative to testing, a very accurate alternative to testing. It's instantaneous in terms of results. And so we built AI models and put that back into the research community as a potential alternative. So there's really you know, a multitude of applications that can help aid in uh, not only the testing, but the diagnosis and the forms of treatment and even predicting the ICU necessity uh, and, and um, you know, supplementary oxygen of COVID-19 patients. And these are all AI algorithms uh, that can be now quickly developed and developed globally because we also created um, something called a federated learning paradigm where we can learn from global data without having to share that data. Uh, and that was another really critical breakthrough of this year in, in the technology. So AI algorithms can abound to really uh, deal with a lot of the, um, the treacherous, you know, happenings in the in the treatment of these patients and the overloading of the healthcare system as Eric mentioned. That's so interesting. Yes, so much is so much has changed as you pointed out. Let's go to an audience question. I think we have a question from um, one of our viewers from Arti Varanasi from Maryland who asks, the promise of technology in healthcare is undeniable. However, achieving access to healthcare and the supporting technology for all is challenging. What do you see as the role of technology in achieving healthcare access for all? Uh, Eric, maybe we can start with you. Well, this is really an exciting area of AI in medicine, uh, and that is giving uh, patients autonomy. So the idea that you can now, through your watch, diagnose atrial fibrillation or heart arrhythmias, that's been... Uh, that was the first FDA-approved deep learning algorithm two years ago. But soon we're going to see, as already available in other countries, using the AI kit to diagnose a urinary tract infection, skin rashes, uh, skin lesions, uh, skin cancers potential, uh, ear infections in children. So these are going to basically be uh, uh, doctorless diagnoses you know, th through algorithms. Uh, and then you can consult a doctor if you need uh, or a nurse uh, for a prescription for, you know, follow-up. So this is one way we're going to improve access. And we need to make this available to everyone because it decompresses these relatively simple diagnoses are very common. And that decompresses this overburdened health system to deal with the more serious ones. And patients want to have more autonomy. So here, AI, all the things that are common that are not life-threatening or serious are eventually going to be moved to this more doctorless uh, style of diagnostics, or if you want to call it screening. 
doctorless diagnostics um, sounds really interesting. Kimberly, what about you? Um, what do you think is the role of technology in achieving healthcare for all? Yeah, you know, what, what, one of the areas we're so excited about and we've been working with the industry for over a decade is in medical instruments. If you think about just uh, medical imaging, diagnostic imaging alone, only about one third of the population has access to it. But what's happened as a result of technology and artificial intelligence is we can make instruments uh, cheaper and also AI guided. So you can shrink an ultrasound down to something you can hold in your hand. The sequencer I talked about, you can hold in your hand. Um, a, an MRI machine that no longer needs a dedicated infrastructure of a room in a hospital, but can be rolled around on wheels and come reach the patient. Uh, one of our great um, partners called Caption Health, they have an a, the very first FDA approved just this year, AI guided ultrasound. This allows for a nurse, not a, a trained cardiac you know, ultrasonographer, a nurse to be able to deliver a cardiac exam on the front lines of COVID-19 so that we can understand a patient's cardiac function, which we know has implications to how that uh, patient is going to perform, as Eric would know. But the fact that we can now have a frontline nurse who has no prior training be able to capture the necessary data so that we can understand more about that patient. These are real breakthroughs. The cost of the instruments will allow them to reach further into the point of care. The AI guided will allow for um, less highly trained um, healthcare professionals to deliver, but yet get great, um, great value out of these. So medical instruments to me is one of the bright lights. It's, it's slightly different than the wearables and the self-diagnostic, but it's really to extend and scale um, our healthcare uh, workers, as well as the technology, which gives us um, such great power to understand more about our patients. Kimberly and Eric, we are out of time, but it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, thank you both so much. Uh, I think it gives us a lot of things to think about um, and hopefully some things to act on in the next several weeks. Um, it was a fascinating discussion. Thank you again for joining us. Make sure to come back and join us right here tomorrow at noon Eastern. My colleague David Ignatius will lead a discussion about the new documentary film, The Dissident, which examines the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It's sure to be a powerful conversation. Thank you again for joining. I'm Christina Passariello. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.